to speak about this month was somebody who was Bishaito, um, considered the God Lador, um, and that was Rabbi Zikachon Inspector. Rabbi Zikachon Inspector was born in 1817, um, 1816, uh, eight, and, eight, um, and he was Nifta in 1896, and Chofal Fada, that's his yard site. Um, he was known, in other words, his last Rabbanis for a long time was Kovna, which was the capital, eventually the capital of Lithuania. And he was the one everyone wrote uh, in Shilas and Shubas from the whole world. Um, and he was in, in Russian Lithuanian Jewry in the latter part of the 1800s. He was the God Lador. He, he, he was the Poisik Akron. He was the one that was involved in every public Indian and was extraordinarily stormy Kufa and extraordinarily difficult Kufa. Before we speak about him, first of all, my sources, which I think is always very important to mention because it's just the, the habit that storybooks are not worth much. Um, you need to know wh where a person got his material from. So the first source, which is the, mo the one used by most historians is a series of memoirs called Zichron Yaakov. Zichron Yaakov was written by Yaakov Lifshitz. He was his secretary in Kovna. He wrote a three volume um, memoirs, which um, has now been republished as one volume. It's in Hebrew, I don't think it's been translated in English. It's an incredible um, ozer of ideas. Um, <coughs> Facts, the tkufas, it's his own, it, he writes about that whole tkufa. Um, there is, it, it, there, this Rabbi Yaakov was um, a very, very fiery speaker, a macher, a, a, a kacha, he was his, he was the Rabbi Yisrochana's secretary. His great great grandson, I guess apropos, puts out the English at Ted. Rabbi is a great great grandson of that Rabbi Lifshitz. Um, the people have a little bit of hesitation about his history for two or three reasons. First of all, he was a political person and he had somewhat of an agenda and sometimes he left out people he didn't particularly care for. Um, there are sometimes he, he writes about things that were before his Kufa, so th th you know they take it a little bit on, on um, not clear that his sources were, you know, anything that he wrote about specifically that he experienced people generally consider as very reliable, but they also feel not always to give a complete picture because he was, he was a political per type of personality. Um, they also um, don't always trust the things that he writes about that he heard from other people that was there that, that had written before. He also put out a specific biography of Yitzchak called Toldos Yitzchak. Those are two very important sources. There is Yitzchak letters, two volumes of which have been put out and uh, I have that, we have Nishiva, that obviously is good. His chuvis reflect some of the points we're going to talk about, even though a lot of it didn't have to do with halachic chuvis. Um, what I think is an extremely, somebody put out a biography of his, but uh, in recently Hebrew, I don't know, the last 10 years or so, I'm, I'm, I, don't, I find some parts of it a little bit, um, I don't know, it, it, it's, it's, a much better one is in the Mechon Yerushalayim's um, 
they put out Rabbi Yitzchak Chuvis that he himself had not published, they put out a big volume, they have a mavo with, with a history, a biography of his that's really excellent, well footnoted, well put, really very clear that the person is, is out to set the facts down, very clear way, very well, and I found that to be the best of all the sources that I saw. He drew, he drew draws on the primary sources, writes exactly where he took it from, and puts it in a, in a way that's very misunder and, and gives a good idea of things. Before we speak about his life, I want to speak about the Tkufa, because the Tkufa and its Nisyonos were extremely important in understanding um, what he went through and understanding the um, uh, understanding the um, obstacles and Nisyonos that he had. The, um, there were three major three or four major events or and I'd say more um, sort of things that were happening um, in his lifetime. The first one started a little bit before his lifetime. Poland and Lithuania were a grand duchy, they were like sort of a country, big country, considered one of the big countries in Europe. In the end of the 1700s, 1790s, um, Russia's appetite was whetted and it began slicing off pieces and basically dismembered uh, Lithuania Poland um, together with Prussia and Austria they each cut up pieces and each one took chunks of it for themselves so that by the end of the 1790s um, a big chunk of Lithuania um, Poland um, had been absorbed as some sort of entity in the Russian Empire it's very important because that, that leads to the next problem um, in 1825, the Tsar, that the, the, the Russian Tsar was Nicholas, became Nicholas I. The one preceding was Alexander, this was Nicholas I. Nicholas I was, um, was a, 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 a Russia, Marusha. There's no, no other way to describe him. Um, even by the Goyish accounts, he was considered to be technically competent but horrendously regressive person in the areas of human rights, etc. And since the Jews are Nikrodom, so th those rights were, were even worse trampled. He was, he was not happy with the fact that when he swallowed up a big chunk of Poland and Lithuania, he got Jews in it. That was, that was the one piece of it that those were the bones that had to be spit out. So he started making Xerus one after the other, and uh, and and the Xerus had there were two purposes. One was to choke them in Gashmias, and one was to destroy them in Ruchnias. Um, he made the the Xerus that they can't move out of certain very very defined <coughs> provinces. What was called the Pale, they had to live in certain areas. They couldn't engage in certain work. Um, they couldn't live close to here, they couldn't do this. Very, very rough Xerus. Um, uh, um, that was one thing that he did. The second thing that he did was, and this was somewhat with the help, well, we'll speak about this, of the Maskilim, he made Xerus about dress, um, try to close down Hadarim, um, it tried to do all sorts of different things to force the Jews to become Russians and Christians and so on. 
a lot of lot of xeris along those lines. Censorship introduced, and the worst, the most detoured, the worst of all was the Cantonist Xera, which was he, he Jews had to serve in the Russian army for twenty five years on a certain percentage, you know, so X amount after certain twenty five years. They would take him away sometimes at the age of eight or nine and the twenty five years didn't start at eight or nine, it started at eighteen. But for eight or nine they gave eight from the age of eight or nine they gave him over to, to Russian peasants to sort of prep them for for, for the military. It, it was horrendous. Um, destroyed first of all most of the kids were killed on the way. Most of the kids couldn't survive the conditions they had for them. And and those few that survived, the vast majority became Goyim. Horrendous Xera. The Yamachmai he joins the proud tradition of Russian czars and post Russian czars that were that, that were really horrendous. That was one thing that was that sets that's the beginning of that Tkufa. In the middle of the Tkufa, you know, starting at the middle of the eighteen hundreds, we had spoken about Daskola last time in Hungary. Daskola in Poland, Lithuania and Russia took on a different format. These people wanted a, whereas we spoke about Hungary and Germany as being very concerned with the ceremony in the synagogues and so on, they had a very different kivun. They wanted an enlightened people, and the two or three things that they focused on was, to first of all, they started publishing tremendous newspapers, periodicals, and attacking constantly Rabbanim, yeshivas, um, etc. and tons and tons of publications. They tried to close down the yeshivas, they succeeded in closing Volozhin at the end of the century, of that century, and they tried very hard to open up um, semin- rabbinical seminaries that, w- that would produce a very enlightened product. There was a second uh, thrust, and a third one was they made Xeris that the Malamdim that that the Malamdim couldn't teach unless they had degrees, being that Muslim have never even gone to public school to school to start with, getting a degree was on the difficult side. It was before they could get in on online. They, they so it was, it was very difficult for a Malamid to have degrees. And th- those were three ways in which they um, in which they tried to um, to destroy Yiddishkeit and Ruchniska sense. They they were fighting the darkness of the of the fanatical old-fashioned Jew and wanted to bring enlightenment. That was a second. That was m- in the middle of the century, moving towards the end of the century. And finally, a third phase was um, in in it, it was pogroms that started in 1881. What happened was the the, the Tsar um, Alexander II, who was more decent than Nicholas. And he he can't he was he got rid of a lot of those Xeris. Um he was killed. He was assassinated. And immediately they the suspicion was they accused Jews of doing it. Um the Jews um they they even when when they caught them it, they were not Jewish. One of them claimed that he was a Jew and then it was found out it was Shekhar Bachazov. But a wave of pogroms started in 1881. Um, in Ivrit, they were codenamed Sufos Banegev because it was a code word to get a, get by the censor, and it was 
these pogroms um, destroyed, uh, I think, 150 kahillas, horrendous. Um, they then sort of, the government was very, very, they said it was the Jews, it was the Jewish, it was the fault of the Jews that these pogroms happened because they choked everyone else out of business and they therefore made laws to further curtail Jewish activities. Jews couldn't own bars, they couldn't work for the government, they couldn't do post office, they couldn't do this, that, and that, and so on and so forth. What happened was, in, it, it, it prompted a huge wave of emigration out of Russia. Probably a quarter of the Jews of Russia, or what was called Russia time, left. Russians were very upset about that also. You know, they, they, it's hard to satisfy Russians, so they didn't want the Jews, they didn't want them to leave. But the vast majority, many of them, almost a quarter, something like two million left to, mostly to America. Those were the three, I guess, um, historical backgrounds to his Tkufa. We'll go back to Rabbi Yitzchok Hanan now. Rabbi Yitzchok Hanan um, was, as a child, he was known as, he was very bright. Um, his Hasmada was incredible. He got married at the age of 13 at Bar Mitzvah. Um, I, it was not uncommon. And he was, I mean, somebody saw his potentials and somebody, and hopped him. He learned by Rev. Um, Rev. Benjamin Diskin. Rev. Benjamin Diskin was, I'm sure you all heard of Rabbi Shulay Diskin, who was the Rabbi Shlaim. This was his father. He was a guy in Oilam. Rabbi Yitzchak learned by him. And he was together with Rev. Um, he was together with his Rev. Shuleib. They were friends. They learned together. Um, his mother was incredible. And for the next, until um, he was about 36 or so, he was a Rav in a small series of towns and tremendous, tremendous deprivation. His salary wasn't. Um, his salary was n not enough to cover bare minimum and he told somebody you know his wife would sometimes come crying that they're hungry she and the kids are hungry and he, he would just he, he would just bury himself in the gemara. he couldn't bear it there's no itza. there's nothing else he could do um he's many years later when he got his rabbanis to covenant it was very bakovedic and you know he, it was a, it was a major abundance with a lot of money and covered and his wife cynically, sarcastically remarked, when we finally have money to buy food, we no longer have teeth to eat them with. That was the way <coughs> he described that situation. But he lived with tremendous deprivation, and his hasmata was incredible, and even in his later years, when he was inundated with issues and problems of Kali Yisrael, he was always able to think and learning while he was talking to people and so on. He would he would um, be half of himself would be thinking, and the other half would be almost totally involved with the people. And he would be you know he would finish talking with somebody, then would run to write down all the chidushim that he had thought of Bishas and so on. He was a rav in many small towns for a whole bunch of years, from the age of twenty until about thirty six. Um, and then he became rav of Navardic, which was a major city from the age of 36 till his late 40s, in which time he became Rav of Kovna. In Kovna, once he became Rav in Kovna, when he was a Rav in Navardic, people started sending him shilas from all over. When he became the Rav of Kovna, he became the 
this central address for sh the most difficult shalos in the entire world, and he um, was the manigador, and everything important, everything difficult, every issue came his way. Let's talk about some <coughs> some of the inyanim. Um, First of all, he wrote um, he wrote the he published um, three or four sfarim with a few halakim that's called Ber Yitzchak, Ein Yitzchak, um, there's Nachal um, Yitzchak, there was Yitzchak with something about it, he started Be'er because of Rosh Hashanah, they're either Be'ur Mashochon Aruch or Nesechtes or Tshuvis. He was most known for his Tshuvis on Agunis. His Tshuvis on Agunis, he, he, he was most nefesh to be Mater Agunos. Somebody wrote about his Chuvas that he counted all his chuvas in his farim. I think there were well over seventy one of his farim, only one that he couldn't find a heter for. But the terim were not off the cuff. There are there are chuvas that have a hundred and two sections, and he didn't just matter, you know, like Mister. This happens and that happened. He he, he was on and shas and he took of tremendous chidushim. In the learning, and he proved it and built it, and made, you know he, he he wrote each piece, each tshuva was not only a specific tshuva; it had in a lot of yesodas that could be used in other places. Um, it, it, especially the the main problem for many of the of of it was myself people who went on ships and ships drowned, and they and now what do you do? It's myshenam safe. Secondly, people disappeared. There are two stories of many, which about his siyater shmayin het agunis. Not everyone was mekabel's psakim, and people were sometimes other rabbanim felt he was being makel too much. So there's one story written, um, and again, this is reliable. This is written from people at the time. Two stories, fascinating stories. One was um, somebody. He was he, he was not to somebody, and was it was he went out on a limb. It required a lot a lot of seifim to be matirit, and a rav came and rabbanim came. They were upset. They complained. They told him they think it's not right, and a short couple later they found the body of that person. Some miraculous way, um, they they uncovered him. Whatever had happened to him, and and it confirmed it. That's one story about a Satish Maya. The other one was there was a woman who asked for Heta and he didn't have one. And she came and sat by him and cried by his doorstep and she sat and said, you know, you write letters for everybody for me now. She didn't even know what a chuva was. And 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 he would look and he was he was very pressed and he and he couldn't he said, I don't know, I can't find a heta. Just doesn't just don't have the right nakudas. And they found the husband um, a long time later, living in some village in Spain, he was found, and people saw in it a tremendous yatid that he had um, been able to, uh, you know, some somewhere in that he wouldn't be mad to the one person whose husband was actually not dead. So his big koach was, in, in his big nsugi was at Argunis. He um, before he died, he was laying on his deathbed. He, he, he was a few days away from dying, he, he, he was dying and he was a few days away from death. 
he reached into his, he told his, he was in pain, and then he told his Gabba, you know, I have an Aguna waiting. And he pulled out of his pocket, somebody had written him a Shiloh, and he, and he looked at it, and he tried desperately to find a hat, he couldn't, he fell asleep. Now and a half later, he got up, he washed Negovasa, and said, and he said, I have it. It's a carbon asana on your bumis. Get me your bumis. And the person told him, Yo, your matzah is precarious. He said, I must do it. And he found the carbon asana they was looking for and wrote a hetter built around the carbon asana. That was his Mr. Nefesh for Hetar Kunis. Incredible. Some of the other <coughs> inyanim that he was involved in, I guess, in, in, in chuvis and things of that nature, um, one was the hetter of Shemitah. Now, what's interesting is the um, he was a rough, and as such, he needed sometimes to, to if he could be mata to be mata. He he didn't have the privilege of asking totally. Didn't have the privilege of being mata totally. He had to go with halacha and apply it. You know, it's Israel until the eighteen eighties um, when Jews came in, in wake of some of those pogroms. There was no Shiloh of, um, there, there was no Shiloh Shemitah, there were no Jews in their farms and so on. Then people came and started colonizing, and in 1888, 1889, I think, was the first Shemitah that were actually Jews there. And they wrote to him that if they're not going to work the land, they're going to starve and so on. He wrote a big tshuva, and he wrote a lot about it, and there was a lot of back and forth. Everyone quotes his tshuva selectively. If you take a look, his tshuva <coughs> straddles a line. He was matter a hetemechira, based on three or four nekudas. First of all, that the situation was generally tkuch nefeshtik. Two, that Jews would not do any melachas deiraisis or rabbanans. If it's a real pikuach nefesh, you can be matted or abundant on it. If it's something that there's no choice, they couldn't hire an Arab or so, but that was condition. The hetem had to be drawn up by Rabbanim Yerushalayim, and it was only valid for that year. So you can quote the tshuva, the people who are machmer quote his tshuva that he, he, you know, he didn't want it to get het and they forced him and this and that, and it was this. The people who are makel say he was matted the mechira. They don't mention um, the, all the conditions that he laid on it that, you know, might not even make it anything but that was something he was involved in, and that was um, a big circuit, that was the end of his life the next Shemitah was the year of his death he was again Makel because of he felt the situation was dire and once again wrote, it's, it's a very specific hatha for a very specific situation not to be learned from it any general hetter whatsoever in any way. Another interesting thing that he was involved in was something called the Corfu Esrogim. Um, in the 1870s, the Jews would get, Esrogim did not grow in Europe, Europe's a cold climate, they would get Esrogim from a Greek place called Corfu, and the Esrogim were very nice. Now, um, the, 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 the merchants in Corfu started jacking up the prices slowly but surely year after year until they, they, they were a few times the price they had that asked a few years before. So people were very incensed with that 
and they also began to be motzilas that the Murkovim. And then people started farming at Yisrael. They said they should buy from at Yisrael instead. And it was a big, big to do. Um, some people used Dafka Karfu because they're, they're more Mechudas. Some people Dafka didn't use Karfu and so on. What the straw that broke the camel's back was that in Karfu there were Xeris against the Jews or pogroms against the Jews. Rabbi Yitzchokhan came out with an Iser for that year specifically. That that year you can't use the Karfu as Rogim. And he said until um, they make the prices reasonable and until they mavar the the, the cautious of it. And when people asked him about it, he was which, so which one is it? He was very he didn't you know, didn't say. But Agapanim he he put the weight of his position against those sorghum. That was another famous parish that he was involved in. Um, another fascinating thing that he was involved with, um, there were machlokas, many machlokas he got involved in to settle machlokas. One of them, when he was a young person in his 40s, in Volozhny Yeshiva there was a big fight between the Rosh Yeshivas. And they, had, they brought in four Rabbanim to act as Borim. Rabbi Tzuchan was the youngest by far. There was a Yosef Pimer and there was a David and so on. And first of all, they invited him to say a Shir Volozhny Yeshiva. It was an incredible honor for like Mihosin, for like Yuchadika people. He was a relatively young person. Um, the the Bachim and Volozhin sat up all night preparing kashes and they, whatever he was going to say that he was going to be attacked. He said his shear for three hours and you know they, they attacked him from all sides and he stood his ground and bested everybody in the yeshiva. Uh, it, it, when he finished he was almost exhausted and he told Rosh Hashiva, you're fortunate that you're able to be in a mock like where people we have such risk and so much going on. But I want to read a psak din of his. It's something, it, you know, sometimes it bothers me when people say there never was such a thing, there never was this, there never was that. Um, I, I'd like to read a psak din of a lajan yeshiva between the, 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 the two rosh yeshivas were um, the Beis Alevi and the Nitziv. You can't get two bigger people. And, and all the people write the history was that they themselves weren't actively involved in Machlokis. But a lot of people stoked the flames, but but they were the, they were the by the plukta. So here is his um, his psakdin. Uh, uh, it's it's Reb David Hevela, it's Reb Yosef Pimer, and it's Reb Zev Wolf and Reb Yitzchokhanen. Signed the last, he's the youngest. Um, this is a um, it's a credible document. It it you know it exists and and. Uh, it was in Tafre Shutches, which is 1858. First of all, there should be shalom with everybody, and if anybody insults or attacks uh, one in Rabbanim, both Rabbanim have to throw him out of Yeshiva. Accepting Talmidim, the Nitziv himself has the only schus to do that. Um, but if a Rav sends a letter to Rabbi Shaber, he's the, the base Levi, he's the one who can um, accept him, but that's it. The Rabbanim have to learn in the yeshiva or in a room in the yeshiva, so they can always see what's doing in yeshiva, and um, and bochum should daven dafkin yeshiva. So it's already a, from 1858. We have already a takron like that. <laughs> um, 
when Mishalachim bring money for the yeshiva, they have to present it to both Rabbanim. They both make a cheshbin, they both write it down, and as soon as money comes to one of them, they have to tell the other one about it and write it down together. All the money will be in a closed box in the house of the Nitziv. There'll be two locks on it. One lock the Nitziv will have, one lock the Bezalev will have. And when you'll need money, the Bezalev will have to come, open it up, and then the Nitziv obviously can open up, and then they'll write down in the Pincus. Um, everything, how to spend the money and everything, will be by the Nitziv's by the Nitziv's um, uh, uh, say so, and the Nitziv is personally responsible to pay the expenses of Mishalachim. Um, they also um, will, uh, he will have 10 ruble, so they doesn't have to keep asking every time the uh, Bezalevi for money and so on, but those will be sort of a, like a, a, a small expenses. Um, they can't fire any Mishalachim unless both agree to fire them. Um, the the rabbits of, of, of Rebitzel of Lajan will get every week a stipend of four ruble. Um, the, um, the, the, the Nitziv will get 13 ruble, and Rebitzel is going to get eight ruble. So it's, it's incredible. I, you know, yeah, there were real fights. There were issues. Let, 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 they didn't fight, but these were issues. Had to run it, and, and they, they brought four up on him. They, they um, put it down. They also have here, in, this is in 1867, um, in Mir Yeshiva, there was an issue. Uh, Mir Yeshiva had been founded by uh, Rev. Shmotektinsky. His son, Reb Chaim Leib, took over. And then his son-in-law came along and demanded a chelik yeshiva and they write over here that the paskin, that the yeshiva belongs to the son and after the son-in-law and he has no chelik and so on. But these were ruled in terrorists, these really happened and, and there were issues. He, um, so that was the, the, that was the machlokas in Velazhin. There was a, um, another whole area that he was involved in sort of two areas that really, um, I guess, dovetail with each other in the f- fight with the Maskilim. So as we said, Europe was beginning to become, you know, Haskola was, was, was beginning to become a mass movement. And in, in Russia, Lithuania, that part of Poland, it focused on um, Haskola, enlightenment and so on. There were uh, uh, s- there were a group of Rabbanim that had a very canoistic approach to these Maskilim, like the Beis Alevi, and fire against them, didn't want to look at them, fought them bitterly, and so on. <coughs> Rabbi Yitzchak was, interestingly enough, very friendly <coughs> with everybody. In other words, he had a positive yachas with the Maskilim. And there was a mice he was staying talking to a Rav and Dr. F- and Feinberg walked in. Feinberg, I think was, I don't know if he was a lawyer, it was a, it was a Khashra person, not from. And Rebbe Khanan spoke with him, uh, Rebbe Khan spoke with him by Richos and was very nice to him. When he left, people, the person standing with him made a face. And Rebbe Khanan said, You'll see. And then at some later date they needed somebody to go to the to the to the Tsar, to the government. 
and they went to Feinberg. And Ritzelchan said, you see, you need these people. You, you can't live on your own because these are the people that you need to intercede on your behalf. So Ritzelchan and A had a good relationship with them. They respected him tremendously. They wrote nice things about him as opposed to most other Rabbanim they wrote the nasty things about. Ritzelchan they wrote very positive things. Possibly Ritzelchan because he was very known for his involvement, his good-heartedness, and involvement in Saris. There were fires in towns that would destroy towns. And Rebbe Sochon went and raised money. He, he, there was a place, Valkamir, a big city and a big place, and he went there and not only raised money, he had to form a committee to, to weed out who deserves, who doesn't, who's laying false claims. He got into it and, and it was very mishtadl, and people appreciated that, and people appreciated how much he was there for everybody, he cared for everybody, every tsar and every tsar. So uh, together, and he was also a very diplomatic person that way. He wouldn't, so, so the Maskilim had pro forma a very, a very um, positive Isiasis team. They looked at, they blamed anything bad on the Yankov Lifshitz that like we said before. Yankov Lifshitz was called the black agent. He, he was the head of the Lishka Shkhera Bekovna. He had the black, uh, um, you know, so they, they, he was more than happy to sling mud at them, and they slung mud at him, and uh, Rabbi Yitzchakon was sort of above the fray. There was one of the things that the, the um, in, the, in the Xeris of making these seminaries, Rabbi Yitzchakon was very against, without ifs, ands, and buts, and, the, you know, he fought it. And because of it, no, nobody good went to there. The Talmudim was so bad and so rotten. <coughs> they were Scotsmen. They really were, were, were fry, and they were laughing stock by everybody. I mean, the government supported it, but they were laughing stock, and and nothing came of it. The um, the the they, the government tried also. To to um, to to get involved with the chadorim, like we said before, the mlamdim would need uh, the the would need to uh, um, pay a what you call it would would need to get a degree and so on. Ritzel Hanan fought all these things, but he did it with a lot of seichel. And here's one example. Now let's explain something. You had the from people. You had the Amoynam. You had the wealthy class of powerful people who, by and large, were masculine and certainly not uh, fans of the, of, the, of the from people. They lived in St. Petersburg, which is the capital of Russia. St. Petersburg was, was the only Jews that lived in St. Petersburg was if you were wealthy, powerful, etc. You were allowed to live there. And that's, that was the hub of all, anything important in Russia, it was the capital. So one of the notables there, but the money was there. There was a fabulous wealth, Baron Ginsburg. There were many, many wealthy people there that you needed them, and they were the ones who could intercede in the government, and they were the ones who a lot of times made the trouble. It was a very, very, very tough relationship. He called, so he once called Nasif. One of these people called Nasif Rabbanim. I think Polyakov was his name, and he says Rabbi I have tremendously good news for you. The, the, the Tsar, in his kindness, has agreed to undertake the Hadarim. 
he will be he will be now funding the Chadarim and will you know he'll you don't have to worry about anything he'll set the curriculum he'll pay the rebbeim he won't mix into the Lamudi Kodesh he'll just have to have some Lamudi Chol and this and that and so on and so forth Basalevi got up and he said we haven't discussed it and I'm speaking on Das Atzmi but you know and he said it it's terrible and don't kill us what you said very very sharp the lodger of Chaim Meisel's got up Rebelli Chaim Meisel got up and he said you know um, he's right he spoke of Das Atzmo and we need to think about it it's a very big issue it's very important let's think about it Rebbein position was it's going to cost the government 20 million ruble I can't he said he can't believe the benevolence of the czar all of a sudden that he's going to spend 20 million rubles on his Jews let's find out where the money is coming from and let's stop it over there they did some research and um, and they and they found out that the money is coming from a, a, a Baron Rothschild I think it was or somebody in, in France who whatever reason he had for doing that once they convinced him to rescind his money, the government had no more interest in pursuing it. They weren't going to spend any money for it. They weren't willing to take Jewish money to spend for it, but they weren't not going to take. But that was a way in which Bechachma, he was able to realize where things are. Um, there was the next, uh, another Chachma of his, again, where he realized in 1881, they, you know, they, these pogroms started. It was, it was, it, it was horrendous. And the Maskilim decided they're going to go with a personal delegation to the, to the Tsar and to his ministers, Naher Nahin. Mr. Khan said, No good will come out of it. And sure enough, they went, and the Tsar said, It's your fault. You know, it's the Jews' fault, and this and that. Rabbi Yitzchel said, A smarter approach would be he's going to, to, he's going to get Goyim in Chutzlaretz involved. In 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 um, in uh, shaming the czar. So what he did was this was very dangerous. I mean I mean this was this was treason. You were you were you were getting foreign agents and that. He wrote a letter to many rabbanim chutzlarets, and he wrote, "I'm sending you out a very important tshuva, a shaila to be done on." It's about a, an aguna that's a very big Rachmanis that's trapped and can't get out of her trap. And I want you to read. Uh, so, and if you get a, a Shaila and Agunis in the next Kufa, know that this is a very important issue. Someone else then wrote a whole letter, someone else with his own handwriting from a different address. It was called Hey Empifiois, where he writes about the conditions in Russia and what they're like, and, and so on. They they sent this to, to Chutzlaretz and they wrote and they and they got the Goyim involved, the more enlightened Goyim to and they had in England they had the the, 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 the English church and many others wrote and the and the president the American they wrote very sharp letters to the Russian government that they can't believe how barbaric they are and this and that. The Russian government denied it and then they sent them proof and stuff like that. And and that at least force them that overtly they shouldn't be able to to you know it stopped the program stopped but it took a lot of chachma to realize that you would have to come from the outside not from the inside 
Um, another very important area that Rabbi Yitzchanan was instrumental in putting the full weight of his person behind it was as follows. The in in um, Rabbi Saul Salanta was able to get money from a wealthy man in Germany, Avadi Lachman. It was actually Zachal There was a year of Shmuel Chavis in 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 Lithuania who decided to do some fatira. He he had a brother in Berlin who approached a wealthy man who was not so from, and got him inspired. This person sent a lot of money to Rabbi Saul Salanta to do something for Habatzas Torah. Rabbi Saul had a few ideas, and then he decided he's going to make a kailul, and he made the kavna kailul, which was very chashvig like to sit and learn. And learning Musa was part of the curriculum. And then they started making more Kailam also in different places. And Rabbi Sol Salanta got Rabbi Yitzchak to be the head of the Kavnakolo. And that, that meant an awful lot. It meant that it had his sponsorship. It wasn't only money that to raise money for it. It was also um, the entire um, legitimacy of it because we'll see soon it was questioned. The coal got established, it flourished, they made branches in many different cities around. Rebitz Kohanan's son, Reb Hirsch Rabinowitz, was the head of it before. He went and became a Rav in some town, and Rebitz Lablaza became, instead of him, the head of the Kola. Rebitz Lablaza was Salamta's biggest Talmud, he was a tremendous Talmud Chochem, and a big Tzadik of Bibal Musa. The Maskilim were furious at this whole thing. The Maskilim, um, first of all, had been trying desperately to make their own institutions for Abanim. It hadn't been successful. They at least thought that they had the Frum people on the ropes. The um, Velazhny Yeshiva, they were, they were fighting to close it. They kept telling the government that they're not following orders and so on and so forth. And the government closed it eventually. And here was something under their own nose coming up. More than that, they were upset at the Musa component. And the reason was because the Lajan Yeshiva had a policy where people learned very stark, and in the free time, um, it wasn't but with, with permission, but many, many Rebachim pursued all sorts of, I guess we'll call it non-Yeshivish activities. And they were studying Askala, and a lot of them were were, were not maminim in a certain, and, and, and it was terrible. It was very destructive, and it destroyed the yeshiva in the end. It, the Balimusa fought against it. First of all, they threw out a bacha that they thought wasn't, you know, Toho Kabaro, and, and they spoke about Abbas Hashem, Yeras Hashem, Avodas Hashem. It was part of the Musa curriculum to talk about it. Maskilim were incensed, and they started a major attack on the Kovnakolo. And they said, this crazy institution has attracted every fanatic and nutcase from all over Russia. And it used to be bad enough they had a place in Asia Shark and this and that. Now they're all over the place. It's 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 a it's it's a destruction of Torah and it's a destruction of enlightenment and he's a he's a Ganif. They they said that the, the Kyle raised X amount of money and only a small percentage is used to pay these people. The money goes to his pocket, Rabbi Slobaz's pocket, and so on and so forth. Very, very sharp attacks. These were, these were in the newspapers. 
the publications. Um, Rabbi Tzachachanan personally defended the Kolo. He wrote a letter, a long letter, that he had a committee of experts look at the books. These are the facts. The income is a third of what you think it is. These are the expenses. This is where the money goes. Everything is up is Kishura and so on and so forth. And so on. And he wrote sharply a little bit. The Maskilim, they couldn't attack Rabbi Tzachachanan. They wrote you know, Rabbi Sochanan, because he's so good-hearted and so naive, it's very easy for people to fool him. We have a lot more experience in public affairs, and so on and so forth. And, you know, if Rabbi Sochanan was on the curl, we have no problem in it, but Rabbi Sochanan is a terrible person, and so on and so forth. But he stood his ground, and they used, if you remember the Alta Nevada we spoke about uh, two or three months ago, um, they used him as an example for the nutcases that are floating around. People that close themselves from the world, I'm doing the world, and so on and so forth. And, and, but this was a big fight, um, and Baruch Hashem did not succeed. The Torah came from, the, from that, and many, many, Anoshim Dolan grew out of it. But this was part and parcel of, it, it, it was a very big fight. Al-Kapadim, I want to finish with um, reading from his Tzavah. Um, in, in incredible. So, like I said before, the last thing he did was two or three nights before his nifta, he, he sat and wrote the Struva for Naguna. Um, he wrote over here in his Savoy, he wrote a Tzavah, and he writes, um, you know, he's uh, um, been in, in uh, you know, he, uh, he doesn't know what his end is, and the person needs to. It was written quite a well, quite a while before he was nifta. He said, first of all, he wants to give gratitude to the kahila that kept him so well and did so much for him. He asked that the kahila be mischazik in two things: in Shabbos and sending the kids to learn Torah. He says, I'm begging you to keep to peace. You know how much I tried hard, and he was always involved in, in, in Machlokas and to try to settle them down. Many times I, I forego, th- I, I forewent things, I forfeited things because of the Akashalam. Even though I know people would whisper about me about it, I couldn't care because Chazal said how much Chazal praised Mailas Hashalom. I decided I'll be Mikal Hashalom no matter what. Um, he says, he asks people to keep the Kavna Kolol going. He said, the, you know, that's a, that's a big schus. He also, one of the things he was very involved in, we should have spoken about before, was kosher food for the Russian soldiers. The Russian army did not supply kosher food. It was a big deal to get them to allow kosher food, but the Jews had to pay for it. He was most inefficient to get the money for it and so on. Then he asked them to take his son as a rob, which they had anyway planned to doing. And then he says, um, I need to mention the following. Um, many times when, when um, I was involved in my rabbinus, 
There were many things that distressed me terribly and upset me terribly. Not the fact that gave me tremendous amount of patience. I never could have lasted as many years as I did. And the, the, the community could have been destroyed by all the fights. And people instead focused all the tightness on me, and I swallowed it all and didn't respond. And even though it left me very weak, and I did it anyone who might have said something about me, might have hurt me, upset me in any way. Not only am I mochel them, I'm, I'm, I'm including them in the bracha that I'm giving the community. And I ask of you, just like I was Moichel and Mevata, my COVID, and all the Yisurim Vava from, from people, just asking them that they should be Mevatla Das to, to my son. And then finally, he says a bracha to them, and 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 so on and so forth. Um, credible. So he was a person who lived probably in one of the stormiest schools in Israel. He was revered by everyone, even though I, mean, I guess we, we don't know all the pratim of people at machlokas and fights and so on. But in, in the newspapers, you can't find in the newspapers would write horrible things. They 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 not newspapers, they're periodicals. They would write, they, 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 the vast majority of the articles were terribly anti-terror. They had the greatest years I covered for Rebiz Um First of all, because it was Emis. His Hasmud in terror was incredible, and everyone knew it. He, he took nothing in this world. He, he, he spent 20 hours a day learning. His, his, his Neimus, his Messinus, his tremendous misnefsha people, his is God Shalom. All all these things were made him like all beloved. People would have pictures of the Vilna Goyen or Gitzchokhan. Those those were like standard two pictures together that people would have their, on on their on their walls and hang and so forth. Um, and it bets him it took Klal from one Tukufa to another Tukufa, from basically the end of the seventeen hundreds to the to the beginning of nineteen hundreds. That was the Tukufa he spent. And the yeshivas that he left, um, the the covenant Kail, which eventually which eventually became the the the, the, the yeshiva and became the, the, the source of the Muslim movement and so on, are, are really a legacy that he left over besides his his chuvis and his Muslim everything about him. Okay. <coughs>